Hello, I'm Guy Walters and this is History Now, a history podcast from Mail Plus. Now, the person we're going to talk about today has long been regarded as one of those very pushy American women who came over here and she stole the heart of a British royal. Now, she was divorced, she had an exotic past, regarded by many as being totally unsuitable to marry into the British royal family. And of course, that relationship was to cause this crisis and the couple are forced to go and live abroad. Now, of course, who am I talking about? The Duchess of Windsor, better known to most of us as Wallace Simpson, who of course fell in love, or Edward VIII fell in love with her, and he gave up his crown for her. Now, I don't want to lay on the contrast or the similarities too thickly, but a lot of people are drawing parallels between Wallace Simpson and Meghan Markle, of course, the present Duchess of Sussex. And I'm wondering just how fair a comparison that really is to either woman, frankly. And I also want to know about other Americans marrying British toffs and royals and whether these relationships have ever, ever worked historically at all. To discuss this, I am joined by the excellent Anne Seber, who is a biographer extraordinaire, a brilliant journalist, and she has written many, many books. And, and two of her best books are undoubtedly this fantastic biography she wrote of the Duchess of Windsor called That Woman. And she's also written, and this help, really helps broaden the conversation, I think, about Winston Churchill's mother, Jenny, who herself was also an American. So we can talk about these American women marrying British aristocracy, British royalty. And thanks so much for coming along today. It's a pleasure. I love talking about this. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Well, I know that the Duchess of Windsor, of course, is a very familiar figure to many listeners. But for those who just need a little bit of a top up, can you just give me just a, a very brief potted biography of her before she ends up becoming the Duchess of Windsor? Yes. Wallace Simpson had been married twice. She came from a Baltimore family that actually was rather well-to-do, patrician, elite, if you like, in American terms. But her father had died, so she was an outsider and she had no money. And that projected her into an early marriage with a naval aviator called Wynne Spencer. It was an absolute disaster. But he took her to the Far East and to China, and it was there that she was said to have learned these dark oriental arts of how to make a man happy. And having ditched him, she married Ernest Simpson, who came from a shipbroking family, Anglo-American. And that's what brought her to London. And at the time that she was married to Ernest Simpson, she was introduced to the then Prince of Wales. And he immediately was smitten by her. He loved everything American. And, you know, it might be said that those were ephemeral American things like jazz and trouser turnips, but he loved American women. And Wallace found this very exciting because they had very little money or what she thought was very little money, not by most people's standards. And she'd married this rather dull man, Ernest Simpson, who seemed to offer her security and safety. But being taken up by the Prince of Wales was very exciting. Now, the real story for me is that everyone assumes she was the one chasing him. And that's true at the beginning. But once it became clear that he was unable to live without her, he was the one chasing her. So... What I tried to do in my book is really 
some revisionism to show that she was the hunted by the end. He simply could not lead his life without Wallace by his side. What do you think is the sort of key to Wallace's appeal for him? I mean, was she a woman of, of, of much personal charm? I, I always find it very hard to sort of connect with her, if you know what I mean. Well, it's it's very complicated. How long have you got? <laughs> is really my answer. It is psychosexual. I think that Edward, as I call him, of course, his intimates called him David, but he became um, Edward VIII, the uncrowned king. So Edward was a man who felt he deserved punishment. He hadn't fought in World War One. He hadn't married and produced an heir. And by all accounts, he didn't think he ever would. So he felt he somehow deserved punishment for not living up to what was expected of the heir to the throne. And then, of course, he abdicated. That's the real crime. But even before that, what Wallace offered him is some kind of humiliation or punishment, which he felt he deserved. And then, of course, I'm quite sure that they made up and everything was sublimely wonderful. So that's the sort of complex side of it. The much more straightforward side of what Wallace offered him was she was very different from these beautiful English roses who his father and mother wanted him to marry. She was not deferential. She was witty. She was spirited. She was prepared to talk back to him. And that's really what attracted him. He was fed up with all these people giving him what he wanted and saying yes, because it just encouraged him to behave worse. And his courtiers, his aides, were fed up with his bad behaviour, the fact that he wouldn't turn up on time. But Wallace was different. Wallace was sort of an old-fashioned courtesan, if you like. You know, think Gone with the Wind. She read up on everything that she thought a man would be interested in, and then she um, regurgitated it. So she made the man she was with, and in this case it was Edward, feel wonderful. And he was no great intellect, but Wallace would sort of digest the papers in her way and tell him what he felt he could do. So that, in a way, was comforting to him. And suddenly he felt he could not do his job without Wallace by his side. And just one final thing, she was stylish. She was not beautiful, but she really made the most of herself. And that was something that Edward, with his sort of half-baked ideas of modernism and what a new king should be, thought was important. He thought that being in touch with things that were modern and stylish was actually very important. So at all those levels, she had great appeal for him. I am hearing so many sentences and phrases by you, Anne, that are kind of resonating through the decades. And I'm sure listeners are probably sort of picking up on them and uh, they're sort of applying them to the interview the other week and, and what we now know with the Duchess of Sussex. Now, I don't want to labour them too thickly. And before we get on to those, I just wanted to look at the context of aristocrats and British royals being seduced by American women, because, you know, in many ways, Edward was, was part of a a tradition that had been taking place for a few decades, wasn't he, of, of you know, wealthy American women coming to Britain and, and marrying toffs. Yeah, well, it's really interesting that you make that comparison. I mean, let's let's unpick it for a little bit. So these women were known as the dollar princesses because it was thought that they had loads of dosh that would shore up 
the British country houses. You know, it's old-fashioned cash for titles. So it's slightly different from the royal family because they, of course, have plenty of money themselves. They weren't looking for American dollars. There's so much to say here. So as you kindly pointed out in your interview, I wrote a biography of Winston Churchill's mother, Jenny Jerome, and it was thought that she had lots of dollars, but actually she didn't have very much money. And she married Lord Randolph Churchill, who was the second son of a duke. So in fact, her money didn't go into Blenheim. But I think if we look just for a moment more closely at Jenny and the women who followed her, because Jenny was taken as a prize example, you know, look what these wonderful American women can do. You do see some parallels. One of them is that they were more open, brash, if you like. The word at the time that was used was fast. They were stylish. They often bought their clothes from Monsieur Worth in Paris. So they knew how to dress. They knew how to enter a room. They were better educated than their British sisters. And that's really interesting. You know, Jenny went to school in Paris. She was fluent in French. She played the piano. She was accomplished. Many English women of the late 19th century probably didn't go to school. You know, they were lucky if they had a governess for a bit. So these American women posed a real threat to them. And, you know, you have somebody like Lord Palmerston, who was prime minister at the beginning of the century, saying something like, oh, by the end of the century, all those pretty and talented women will be running half the chancelleries in Europe. So there was a real fear of what American women would do and a, a real fear that the British aristocratic women wouldn't get a look in. But mostly these marriages weren't what they seemed at all. Mostly they were unhappy um, Randolph Churchill died after 20 years, probably of syphilis. And many of the women who followed in Jenny's footsteps, Consuelo Izanaga, Consuelo Vanderbilt, some of them brought money. But by and large, these marriages ended in divorce. They were not happy. So perhaps some country houses were shored up thanks to their dollars. But I do think what you see is what Jenny saw. She was scathing about Randolph's sisters and about how they had no style and how they had no education and what a backward, dull life she was expected to lead. She was bored stiff with the rigidity of it. And perhaps that brings us back to today's subject. You know, it's it's the rigidity that it has really been thrown up in, in the press and, and as people are dissecting what the effect of, of the latest bombshell into the royal family is, you know, is it an institution that has to stay the same or is it an institution that's capable of change? And, you know, what we've seen over the years is that it's supremely able to adapt itself. Can it adapt itself yet again? In my view, you know, this is the absolute nub of the issue that the British royal family, the monarchy, has to have this fairy dust sprinkled on it. Of course, it's it's magic. But at at another level, as soon as it becomes ordinary, as soon as it accepts commoners into it to uh, as marriage partners, then somehow it becomes too ordinary. And, and so it's this sort of tightrope between being a family that we all aspire to 
And isn't it wonderful when it brings the gilded cage out? And isn't it historically resonant and, you know, the links that go back forever, although nobody believes in divine right anymore. It's this tightrope between being completely different and aspirational and wonderful and magic and being ordinary and something that we can all understand. And I think they've got some navigational tasks ahead of them, if you like. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's really interesting you, you, you mentioned about how the Prince of Wales, of course, the man who becomes Edward VIII, actually was hunting Wallace Simpson. And this idea that, you know, people regard Wallace as, as you know, out to get her king and bag her monarch. And that, that obviously you kind of turned it on its head. Now, I, th I think one of the things that emerged in the, the kind of Meghan Markle interview was this idea that the Duchess of Sussex had said that she hadn't done any research uh, about her, 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 her husband-to-be. And indeed, it seemed that she wasn't really aware of what the role of being a royal was. Do you think that the Duchess of Windsor actually wanted to marry Edward? And if she did, do you think she had any knowledge of what that would have entailed? Or did she just not want to marry him? By the end, no, she definitely did not want to marry him. She would have done anything to get out of this marriage. Having discovered these private letters, she ridiculed him in private. She talked about him as Peter Pan, the man who wouldn't grow up. She knew she was going to saddle herself with an extremely needy child, you know, a man baby, if you like. And she begged him not to abdicate. She didn't think they would have enough money. All of that is in the private letters. She tried even to escape to Canada at the last minute with half a divorce. She'd have been in some sort of limbo. But by the time he abdicated, she knew that she had to go through with the marriage. So why didn't she want to marry him? I don't think that she quite understood. And I hope we'll come back to this business of Megan doing her research. I cannot believe that an intelligent woman, and I'm really as much on Team Megan as it's possible to be, but there were some things in that interview that are hard hard to take. And I think the idea that an intelligent woman hadn't done her research is one of them. But she would have learnt that the royal family is absolutely all about service or it is nothing. And that's what floored Wallace. And Wallace was encouraged in this by Edward VIII. They really didn't understand. And it was much more important in 1936 when there was no welfare state. The royal family was key to raising money. You know, these charitable events would happen. And if the royal family didn't turn up, then the money wouldn't be raised. And Wallace didn't really understand or enjoy that her life as a royal would be opening schools and factories. And, you know, all of that is quite boring. She enjoyed the glamorous side of it. When her father-in-law, King George V, celebrated the silver jubilee of his reign, Wallace was very pleased to get some new magnificent earrings, but she referred to it not as the silver jubilee, but the silly jubilee. So that <laughs> gives you a, a, an idea of why Wallace didn't take an idea of service seriously. But back to Meghan, I guess what she's really hinting at is that she thought there would be some way to pursue her own role. And, you know, this is an intelligent, active woman in many 
important human rights and, and women's rights charities. And I can only explain it by believing that she hadn't realized she wouldn't be able to pursue those charities. And that's what I think is such a devastating loss for the royal family, to have this woman of colour, this woman who had proved herself before she married in a number of spheres, not to be able to use her in the Commonwealth is absolutely tragic, really, because she could have been a role model for this adapting modern royal family. Going back to Wallace, I, I don't think that that actually was a loss at all. And I think we got the better brother in 1936. I mean, what I really want to say is that when I was asked this question a year ago, when they both went abroad, first of all, when they stepped back from the royal family, I would always say this isn't similar at all. This is just not the same story. There are far too many variables. Divorce was such a key issue for Wallace and having two living husbands. And, you know, Harry is six in line to the throne, so it wasn't a constitutional issue. You know, there are many, many differences. But the more I sit with this story and examine it, there are issues. I think perhaps what I really want to say is that in a way this time, it's more of a crisis for the whole country because Meghan is accusing us all of attitudes of racism. And I think that is the one issue that really has to be taken seriously. And that was, of course, not an issue in 1936. You could say we were anti-American. But I think she made some very serious accusations. So it's not just the monarchy or the institution of monarchy or even the royal family that is at fault here. In a sense, we all are. And I do think it, it has to be addressed. Whereas in 1936, you could say perhaps it was even a religious crisis because they were worried how could Edward marry Wallace when women who'd been divorced couldn't marry in church. So it was a very different issue. I, I do still think that. But at the same time, I think now we're facing just a, an issue of real significance that has to be addressed. And taking it back to the royal family, I think one of the most serious aspects of this is why didn't Charles and William defend her when you have 70 members of parliament who felt this was a serious enough issue? What is it in the institution of monarchy that blocked them because I'm sure they're basically good people and sympathetic people. Why did they not feel able to stand up and defend her? So, you know, I, I do think it's a serious issue that we're facing, which does have irresistible resonance with what happened in, in 1936. Yes, and I really agree with you that this isn't a crisis for the for the monarchy and the constitution in the same way as 1936. And I absolutely agree with you that this is a sort of raises more broader societal issues about racism in a way that's sort of irrespective as to whether what the Duchess of Sussex accused this unknown member of the royal family of doing. You know, we feel that we know quite a bit about what's going on today, although, of course, there must be a lot that we don't know. Uh, just uh, how much did the general public really know what was going on in 1936? <laughs> That's so interesting because, of course, um, the newspapers were, were employing self-censorship 
they didn't know anything. It was all kept from them unless you had American friends and you could buy American newspapers. Um, it was only in 1936 when he'd become king, the uncrowned king, and he then went on this trip around the Dalmatian coast in a yacht called the Narlin. And then there were photographs of Wallace, a married woman at this point, she had not divorced Ernest, with her hand resting on the king's arm. And once that photograph went round the world, everybody was talking about it. And then there were stages when, um, you know, bishops spoke about um, Edward not going to church enough, sort of using veiled language. So increasingly, they knew more and more. And in October 36, Wallace had the first stage of her divorce. And then she was written about. And, and that was very interesting to me as well, because after Wallace was known to be the king's girlfriend, although worse words about her were used, people wanted to take pot shots at her. She had poison pen letters. She was terrified of being the victim of an assassination attempt. And even the Prime Minister Baldwin seriously thought somebody might take a pot shot at her. Every time a flash bulb went off for a newspaper, she thought it was actually a gun. She was terrified. And that's why she had to be got out of the country. Once everybody knew, they hated her. They thought she was the wicked witch who had stolen this handsome, charming prince. Again, see historical parallels there if you want. But it really was self-censorship. Nobody told the press they couldn't write about Wallace until um, her, her divorce, her half-stage divorce was public. They censored themselves. And once the British public did know about it, they really turned on Wallace in every way she was considered a Nazi, a gold digger, an adventurer, a harlot, a whore, absolutely everything was thrown at her. And really, I think until very recently, until these letters that I found, nobody was prepared to believe that actually it was the prince or the king, as he then was, pursuing her. He had decided he could not be king without Wallace by his side. So she was the one who got the blame, but the, the British public really was having to do catch up big time because they hadn't really been kept informed all along as to who Wallace was. It was as if she sort of jumped on the stage fully formed as a 40-year-old with these two living husbands. I could just imagine what Twitter would have done in 1936 and 1937 to Wallace Simpson. I, it, would, it would have been an absolute uh, horlicks. But I, I, there are all these accusations thrown at her. And I, I must confess, Anne, I wrote a thriller many years ago called The Leader, which imagined a world in which Oswald Mosley was Prime Minister of, of Great Britain. And I have Wallace Simpson there being very sympathetic to the Nazis and being very friendly with Ribbentrop, the German ambassador. We know there are obviously famous pictures of uh, Edward and Wallace uh, meeting Hitler. How sympathetic do you think that she was or they were towards Nazism? I know a lot is made of this. I just wonder whether it's been slightly overblown. 
that really is such an interesting question too because of course there's that famous picture which with good reason has come to haunt them both of Wallace smiling as she curtsied to Hitler. I don't actually believe Wallace was anti-Semitic. She might have been a little bit because it was in the air in Baltimore where she grew up but I think she knew perfectly well that her second husband Ernest Simpson was actually Jewish. I mean he wasn't very actively Jewish and he probably probably would have denied it. But nonetheless, he was born Jewish. And I think she knew that. And there's a very interesting letter where Ernest goes off to Hamburg, because that's where the family shipping company was in Germany. And Wallace is actually rather worried about dear, solid, secure Ernest, what's going to happen to him. So I don't think she was any more anti-Semitic than anyone in her circle of the time. There are lots of issues here. Ribbentrop, of course, paid attention to her because that was his job. His job was to find out people who'd be sympathetic to Hitler if Hitler won and, and became some kind of world leader. Who was there in England? Well, obviously, the king's girlfriend needed to be tested. And I think Ribbentrop was just reporting back that here's somebody who's likely to marry the king. And this is the real point of my answer. Edward was deeply sympathetic. Sympathetic not only to Germany, but I think to the Nazis as the only bulwark against communism. So the hatred and fear of the Bolsheviks was overriding. And if you couple that with Edward's natural sympathy towards the Germans, don't forget that the Windsors were Saxe-Coburg before they were Windsor. They were German. They had German cousins. And Edward was very proud of the fact that he spoke German, that he'd been to Germany many times. And he really was also a bit of a pacifist and a peaser. So he believed that he could really do something worthwhile by becoming friendly with Hitler and going to visit Hitler and trying to secure peace. So he made a broadcast right up until 1939. You know, he was married to Wallace at that point. He went on this trip because the British had abandoned him. So they'd found somebody who was prepared to take him to Germany. And he made that trip because he wanted to show Wallace how she'd be treated if she did have royal initials, HRH. Don't forget that although he was the Duke of Windsor, HRH, she was only Duchess of Windsor with no royal initials. Edward was so furious about that that he wanted to take her somewhere where she'd be treated with respect and curtsied to. So that's why they went to Germany. And I think that Edward really was pro-German, pro-Nazi to the extent he understood their philosophy. And he understood it enough to realise that he thought they were a good thing because they would beat the Bolsheviks. Now, the other part of my answer is the what if. And I I don't usually like doing what ifs in a historical context, but let's take what if Edward had been um, put back on the throne by Hitler. If Hitler had won, had occupied Britain and was looking for a monarch, he would obviously have gone to Edward and Wallace. And I think by 1945, they were so angry with the British, so angry with George VI for denying Wallace royal initials. And this bitterness was corrosive that I think, I, I think it's undeniable 
Edward and Wallace at that stage might have been prepared to come back as some kind of puppet leaders. So I've broken a rule. I've talked about what if history, but but it is so interesting, this Nazi sympathy. I'm very grateful you have, Anne, because I, I, I think that, that, that that's a great what if. I mean, the idea of Queen Wallace in a, in a Nazi puppet <laughs> state. <laughs> but just one final question, just to sort of wrap it up. Obviously, our royal couple today are sort of feel like they're in exile in Los Angeles. Uh, whereas, um, of course, the, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor were sort of in exile in Paris, largely, weren't they? I know it wasn't technically exile, but can you just to sort of to wrap things up, just describe briefly what that sort of exile, that time abroad was like until they died? Yes, well, for the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, they didn't really know where to settle. Edward had a ranch in Canada, in Alberta. He would have quite liked a private life there, but Wallace didn't want to settle there. He had Fort Belvedere in Windsor. And I think when he abdicated in such a hurry, his idea was that he would come back to Fort Belvedere and he'd be forgiven and a role would be found for him as an ex-monarch and he'd you know, have all the joys and pleasures with none of the duties and responsibilities. Well, initially, it was his brother and sister-in-law, who George, George VI and Elizabeth, who were not going to give him that level of, of reward. But after World War II, it was the British public who didn't see any reason why he should be rewarded. So having spent the war as governor of the Bahamas, they then wondered after 1945, where shall we go? And actually, it was only after um, George VI died and our present queen came to the throne. And they realised at that point that there was going to be no forgiveness for them in England. So where were they going to go? Wallace didn't want to go back to America because she felt she wasn't really treated seriously in America. So they settled in Paris. They were given a house at a peppercorn rent. I think the French rather enjoyed hosting an ex-king. And she led an empty life, really, in my view. They could have done so much, but it was a self-exile in a way. They could have come back. But Edward believed that if they came back, it would only to be insu- to, to see his wife insulted and humiliated because she didn't have royal initials, so she wouldn't be curtsied to. So effectively, they were exiles in Paris. They travelled a bit. They expected everyone else to pay for them. I've been told that endless times wherever they went. They believed it was such a privilege to have um, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor that therefore... Um, they should pay for the privilege and they would travel with sort of 56 suitcases at a time. But I think my sadness is that they found no role at all with all the money that they had. They could have set up some sort of foundation for design, for fashion, for jewellery. They just lived as a sort of empty, superficial cafe society traveling from one place to another, being hosted by other people. And just to finish on an upbeat, I really do believe that Harry and Meghan have so much more intelligence and natural intuition that they will find a useful role for themselves. And I don't believe, and I hope I'm right, that they will follow that path at all, which really was just downhill all the way for Wallace and Edward.
I think it's really nice to end on, on an upbeat note. There's been a very painful sort of fortnight, hasn't it? Or a whole year, really, for the royal family and, and, and for our relationship with them. So I think it's nice to know that even though there are some, obviously, some similarities between the, the two duchesses, I think you're right. I agree with you, Anne. I, I do think that the present day royal couple overseas have hopefully a brighter future ahead of them. And I think that, yes, I think Wallace and Edward did waste their latter years. I, I really do agree with you. But look, it's been absolutely fascinating. I'm sure people are going to want to read your book, which, of course, is called That Woman. And could you just briefly tell me what the title of the uh, Jenny uh, Churchill one is? It's just called Jenny Churchill. There is a new paperback edition of her, actually, because it's a 100 years since Jenny died. She died at, at a tragically young age of 67, falling down the stairs. And, and the book is called Jenny Churchill, with her looking very imperious. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Anne, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And that's it for today. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe to us and leave us a review even on uh, Apple Podcasts or on Google or Spotify. Um, and you can also uh, listen to the podcast on the Mail Plus app. And of course, you can catch up uh, with Mail Plus on Twitter at Mail Plus, And you can catch up with me on Twitter at Guy Walters. But in the meantime, thank you very much for joining me. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>